0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Barbara Black, author of the book Hotel London, How Victorian Commercial Hospitality Shaped a Nation and Its Stories. Barbara, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate this invitation to talk about Hotel London.
2: Well, it's my pleasure because it gives us an opportunity to talk about a really wonderful book, I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, so I teach at Skidmore College in upstate New York. Uh, I recently became chair of the English department. So any listeners, you need to, to pray for me because that's a hard gig uh, if you're also a writer and a scholar. But I, I love the work. I, I love supporting the work of my colleagues and moving my department along. Um, It is the Department of English that I chair. Uh, I'm also on the graduate faculty at the School of Letters uh, at the University of the South, which is a low residency program for master's and MFA. And uh, I teach Victorian literature and culture.
2: How did you come to write a book about hotels in Victorian era London.
1: Yes. Thank you, Mark. That's, that's, that's a long um, answer, but I hope it's an interesting answer. So uh, this is my third book and Hotel London is the last installment of what turned out to be a trilogy. And I didn't set out to write a trilogy, but my first book uh, was on museums in 19th century London. And I was very interested in uh, why a culture collects in order to exhibit. Uh, and so I wrote that book. And then I, I think at some point, oh, and what motivated that book, I should quickly say, is I was studying uh, a poem by Robert Browning. And it's a poem, a dramatic monologue on the painter Andrea Del Sarto. And I'd been in the National Gallery as I'd known Robert Browning had been in as well. And I was making an argument about this poem based on the layout uh, that I had experienced in this particular particular gallery space in the National Gallery, and that it dawned on me, what was the museum like when Robert Browning entered it? And that, that led me down this path of trying to understand more fully what the Victorians were doing um, in building these, these grand public museums. My second book is um, A Room of His Own, is on gentlemen's social clubs in 19th century London. So I think you're already seeing a pattern here. Uh, I am very interested in the cityscape. I'm interested particularly in institutional cultures. I am fascinated by these new, what I call new building types that did not exist, or new enterprises that did not exist exactly in the way they came to exist in the 19th century. Um, they didn't exist before. So, again, all cultures have collected. Um, there have always been spaces for same sex gathering um, or associational cultures. But uh, what I noticed is that, you know, sort of the public civic museum is new in the 19th century, the gentleman's social club is new as well. And while I was finishing, Mark, um, that research on gentlemen's clubs, I kept seeing Victorians talking about hotels at the same time. And they were making comparisons as well as contrasts that the hotel was like the gentlemen's club, but it was a co-ed space. And so it was it was dedicated to associational culture, um, to sociability, to um, networking and gathering, enjoying the pleasures of the city. But the Grand Hotel invited women um, into its space. And so I'll talk a little bit later in our conversation about the hotel woman. She was the the greatest surprise of this particular (laughs) project. So, So stay tuned for that. But so, again, I'm interested in you know, why these new enterprises, why these new building types arose in the 19th century? What what cultural, what social, political forces are at play here? And, you know, I make the argument in Hotel London that the modern city is unimaginable without hotels. We We just can't even understand the modern city without recognizing the importance of this building type and this enterprise. So... My trilogy together, you know, it's about these distinctive spaces and how they built the modern metropolis. And particularly London is the hub of a global power. So I'm also interested in three institutions that were really dedicated to um, nation making and nation building. And I think the last point I'll make, Mark, is that, uh, you know, all three of those buildings are really connected to the issue of sociability. Uh, And then also um, this figure that's been on my mind all my life and maybe we could psychoanalyze it. I don't know, but I'm fascinated by the insider, perhaps because I feel like I'm often the outsider looking in. So that's the psychoanalysis part. That's kind of interesting. Like, who has the right to be there in a grand hotel? And that question goes all the way back for me, Mark, um, to the museum that opens its doors, uh, ostensibly to the entire public. But of course that, that promise of inclusion and access, uh, also leads to some, you know, some moments of exclusion mm-hmm. and absolutely the case with the grand hotel.
2: I, I like that last point that you made in particular, because it gets to uh, an aspect of your book that you you start off with, which is the, the notion of what the hotel is in a person's imagination and i, I like how you, you connected to what the experience of a, a hotel-like space was for you when you were growing up and, and you use that as a segue to talk about not just the institution of hotels their operation of hotels but you talk about what hotels meant to the victorians as we can see in their literature as we can see in their writings sort of how they were grappling with this new space that you're talking about and 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 what it what it meant. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit about about that. What we refer to as the, the fantastic modalities. You know, the, sort of what these hotels were to them, and 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 how they were different from say the 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 inns and and and, and other places that 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 had uh, predated the the emergence of the modern hotel in the nineteenth century.
1: Yes. Absolutely, Mark. I can, I can already tell at the beginning of our conversation that you were a very careful reader of my book. So these, these questions are terrific. So, you know, in answer, Mark, to your first question, I gave you a kind of scholarly answer, you know, that this, this Hotel London book is the last in my trilogy, and these are the kinds of questions and sites that interest me as a scholar. But Mark, you're absolutely right. I begin the book with a very personal opening uh, and I do travel back, and I ask my readers to come along with me. I travel back to my childhood and being a kid. And that was a very risky opening for me. It's I'm not a memoir writer, um, but for For the listeners um, out there, I talk about playing Monopoly, um, the board game. I talk about the hotels of Atlantic City. I grew up in Pennsylvania in a very small rural town full of farmers and I never had any access to hotels. I explain in my book that my large family, we never went to a hotel. We never went far enough to justify a stay in a hotel. And so, um, and I'm also, by the way, I, I sort of survey the hotel as represented in film and also television and visual culture as well, because I wanted to get at that, the, the richly imaginative potential or what I call phantasmic, uh, phantasmic modalities of the hotel. I wanted to get at that because I think my book is fundamentally about desire And I needed to share with my readers how, you know, here I'm psychoanalyzing again. I was the outsider um, to the world of glamorous or grand or palace hotels, what Henry James sometimes called monster hotels. And I realized that the hotels are about desire. They are about desiring bodies. And I needed to be honest with my reader about my own childhood associations and the associations I had through film and television with these hotels and mark that just kind of taps into uh what the victorians were hoping to experience when they went and stayed at these these new buildings uh these grand hotels uh hotels grand hotels uh they offer a place of i'll speak basically for a moment they offer a place of shelter they are a place where a guest is hoping to be taken care of They provide sanctuary. Um, But to get a little bit more interesting now, I feel that hotels certainly promise uh, they're kind of a portal to an elsewhere. And this is a a major argument in my book that the hotel is both home and not home. Uh, In the sort of common parlance that we still use today, um, they offer a home away from home. And so I'm really interested in, in, in what sociologists um, call awareness and how the hotel promises, you know freedom, movement, mobility. And, and I mean movement both in the literal embodied sense that people who stay in hotels are usually tourists or they're traveling. But I also mean the promise of social mobility, that hotels in a variety of ways, are connected to social mobility. Um, but also, and, and I'll, I'll stop soon because I want to hear your next question. But you know, I'm really interested in the hotel, in dialogue with the home and with the city street as well. So that's that triad of hotel street and home really interests me. Just a few more quick points. Um, the, the the sort of, um, the allure of the hotel um, for the desiring body and the desiring imagination. Uh, the Grand Hotel promises luxury. It promises catered experience. I'm using intentionally in my book a very modern sounding phrase when I say catered experience. Because in this way, I don't think the Victorians are any different than we are today when we go to luxury hotels and expect certain, you know, thread counts in the sheets, um, beautiful soaps, chocolates on the on on the pillow at night. Um, So catered experience. um, It's a convenience culture and hotels. Also, uh, I'm fascinated with glamour and what we mean by glamour Um, novelty. Um, beauty orderliness I'll, I'll end this list in a moment but uh, and you know that this is at the beginning of my book and it's a through line the, the the Grand Hotel just promises an encounter with the exceptional and that's that's really satisfying deeply satisfying to the imagination I can say more about that later
2: I, I, I could very much relate to the point that you were talking about about how that develops. What I also liked what you did in your book was you explained why that develops, when it does. I mean, you don't have that say in the in the 17th century, the 18th century, but you start to see it in the 19th century, as you explain in your book, that you're starting to see this this intersection taking place. You know, you think about what uh, you know, accommodation was like prior to the 19th century and it wasn't as luxurious. You didn't have that, but what you're describing is this moment where the opportunity for something like this arrives and you you uh, connect it with what's going on in terms of class, what's going on with terms of this rising middle class that's starting to become more mobile because of trains, because of their prosperity, and how it's it's a market that they're not catering towards your farmer who's coming in for market day. They're not catering to the uh the 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 the, 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 the you know traveling salesman who is you know peddling their wares. They're 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 Catering to the, this this more affluent person, and also the, as you explained, they're catering to that you know that also that that lower level of gentry who may not be able to afford a place in London, but can all but who nonetheless has that expectation of standards. I especially like that connection you make about how so much of that experience of luxury is a transplant of what we might call the the, the country house or the the townhouse experience. Only now it's something that you can rent instead of having to buy or employ.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I often think as I was writing the book, I was thinking of that phrase, you know, be, you know, live like a king for a day or be a queen for a day. Um, that, that was definitely the promise. Um, a kind of, uh, encounter with affluence that you might be able to sustain for several days, um, you know, I talk in my book also that some of the the grand hotels that I studied particularly are focused on they had connections with literal royalty. But again, I think the promise is, again, the phantasmic, the imaginative, the appealing promise here is that you can you can live like a king or a queen. And uh, you know, I talk, I, I think Mark, it's one of my favorite words that I discovered in my book, this concept or this problem of influenza. And for the listeners, I want you to think of that word spelled with two N's. So, you know, the sickness of the inn or the tavern lodging. So, you know, again, the sort of the cultural critics or the talking heads of the 19th century in England. They're wor- really worried about England because they think they have, you know, they, their country suffers from this epidemic of inns that that keeps them stuck. And Mark, this is what you were just talking about, keeps them stuck in the days of travel by coach. Um, but my argument, of course, is the hotel is the child of the era of steam and rail, uh, and so you know. Um, England is now a global player, of course, it's one of the most, uh, it, it, it's, it's the world power, but England is late to uh, the commercial hospitality business. And what I started to discover pretty early on in my research, Mark, is that the conversation about British Grand Hotels was a conversation that was fixated on the United States And France, so in the North Atlantic hospitality um, uh, uh, enterprise or industry, it's the United States is really the forerunner. We're the leader. And we are particularly known for our efficiency. Um, We do this thing called hospitality on a grand commercial scale. We do it really well. And there there are reasons for why the United States got into commercial hospitality first. and, And I talk about that in my book. But then there's France, and France's kind of niche in this market is that they're known for elegance, and this is no surprise, right? And so they're building their hotels also in advance of England, uh, particularly in terms of their commitment to building modern Paris. England, as you mentioned, you mentioned the, um, the, the English country home. England, a late comer to commercial hospitality, tries to, to catch up and establish its particular niche as comfort, Um, right, the British style of comfort. And I noticed that particularly in the early promotional materials for Browns, um, I focus on five, we'll talk about them later. I I focus on five grand hotels of 19th century London, but Browns is my first. Browns particularly kept promising to its patrons um, an experience in an English country house. Um, Come here and we'll give you that experience. So you were also right, so the technologies are there in place, the sort of global ambitions of England to be this um, cosmopolitan country, to be host to the world. Um, This is obviously the century of the Great Exhibition uh, of 1851. If you have all these people traveling to London, you can't have an inn or a tavern uh, providing them with their shelter or their lodging. So You're absolutely right. This is about, you know, global positioning. It's also about strengthening and widening middle class, um, often fashioned by and signaled through consumer behaviors, consumption patterns. And so, you know, again, having having the wherewithal to know that you want to stay at Brown's, um, that's a middle class tourist or traveler who has leisure, um, who is interested in conspicuous leisure, and wants to have access to you know sort of the cultural capital that comes from staying at a grand hotel.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. These are two minute meals, slash NBN fifty to get 50% off.
2: I was wondering if you could if you could explain a little the immediate origins of the hotels, and in particular the the five that you chose. You, I, I thought it was interesting you start off the chapter uh by listing some of the hotels that you could have chosen. Uh hotels like say uh the Grand and <laughs> Trafalgar Square, the Cadogan, uh the Carlton, and, and yet you chose five that are, are very iconic and 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 very representative. What do they tell us about the development of these hotels and 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 what were some of the things that really make them stand out as embodying this experience?
1: Absolutely. That's a great question. And and Mark, I've heard from readers of my book and they will often say, "Oh, why didn't you include the canal?" You know, that my readers will often they they question when well, you're not doing that exactly. You're asking me to explain my choices, but the issue of choice was really hard, Mark, um, because I do begin the book pretty early on. i i I do list. I wanted all my readers to know, uh, I wanted them to see on the page that i'm I'm not making a claim that isn't verifiable, that uh, my entire the the title of my entire book, Hotel London, is a phrase that I'm lifting from a social observer, George Sims who said, you know, Hotel London is is great and growing. Uh, And again, so many cultural observers say that this is the building type that uh, is is, is sprouting up everywhere in the the cityscape um, of London. So choice was really hard, um, but I chose five hotels. uh, And for our listeners, I'll quickly mention it's Browns and I just referenced them a moment ago, Claridge's, the Langham Hotel, the Midland Grand, or what is now called St. Pancras, and the Savoy. So a cheeky response to your question, Mark, is that these are the five hotels that I wanted to go visit. Um, (laughs) (laughs) As part of my research program, I'm I'm putting that in air quotes. I don't know if you can hear the air quotes. (laughs) So part of this was, again, my desire um, to to go to these five. But let me not just be cheeky, because I had some serious reasons for choosing these five. And I have about five serious reasons, actually. So I wanted hotels that are still in operation today because I am trained as a historicist, but I also wanted my book to have this sort of strong transhistorical sort of motivation or, or, or kind of spine, um, because I'm a historicist, but I'm also what is now called a strategic presentist, which sounds like those two things could not go together, but I am interested in what the past can tell us about our present. And uh, these are all hotels that our listeners will, I think, recognize by name. And I wanted to understand again, what is the dream of the Grand Hotel? Because it's still clearly working for us today. It's not just something that appealed to the Victorians. Another serious reason for the choice of these five case studies is that I wanted to cover the entire Victorian era. I was interested in how the commercial hospitality industry evolved. Um, It is essential in understanding the concept of luxury that luxury must change. It does get redefined. If luxury becomes predictable and therefore too accessible, it stops being luxury and it stops being luxurious. And again, if Grand Hotels are all about what a culture desires, desire is going to change as well. So the Grand Hotel, and I stole this point from Joan Didion, the Grand Hotel is a perfect mirror of of a society at any given time. Uh, And again, what it desires, um, what it values, um, maybe even what it fetishizes. So I, I wanted that arc. And so Brown's is my earliest case study, and the Savoy that opened in 1889 is my latest um, case study. Another serious reason, Mark, is that I was interested in developing or offering to my reader, and I'll offer it to my listeners here, a set of key concepts that I think, you know, I don't want to boil down my arguments to single words, but it was a way of organizing my thinking and giving my reader and my listener here a kind of framework. So for Brown's, it seems to me that the the key dream there, um, the the key allure is is Englishness. As I just said, the promotional materials for Brown's particularly connected to um, the country, the the English country house, and particularly to London. Um, Claridge's, I think, offers the promise of glamour. I said a few minutes ago that I'm very interested, and I do a kind of meditation or examination of glamour, um, and what it, because I think that's a concept, we know it when we see it, but I'm not sure that we've really dissected how glamour works. The Langham, probably the least, I think, well-known today name of my five, uh, was all about Americanists. And, uh, Mark, the Langham was London's first purpose-built hotel. So I'm interested in architecture, and I'm interested in the building. I mean, I I call one of my chapters um, the biographies of five buildings. I wanted to tell the stories of these buildings, and I had to put Langham in since it was the first purpose-built um, hotel for London, but also because it was based on American models. So in the Langham, I have this wonderful sort of theater for that drama that I identified a few minutes ago, this sort of national competition uh, among England, among uh, England, France, and the United States. Um, finally, the Midland Grand Um, that's about mobility. The Midland Grand was called a terminus hotel because it was connected to a train station. And so for me, the key concept there is mobility. You've heard me use that word a lot. Mobility is very, very important to me, as is specifically the railroads. And then finally, the Savoy, um, obviously built by Doily Cart, Uh, to lodge, um, to provide lodging for many of his, frankly, American patrons who are coming over to see his Savoy theater productions. Uh, And so for, for me, the Savoy is all about the nighttime and nocturnal London and London and all the pleasures that London at night can offer. The Savoy is the juiciest. I think the Savoy section is the juiciest part of my book. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> well I,
2: I was thinking your, your choices were also really interesting because you chose five that do such a great job of telling the story of how hotels develop how you have with browns and and uh and uh i it, I think it's Claridge's the uh how they evolve out of the the London town home, how you have a, you know, uh people that were in service who begin these places and are effectively using their experiences and their and 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 their knowledge to create that experience. And then you get to by the by the time you get to the Savoy, you're talking about a very much of a late Victorian institution. You describe how uh Doyle uh, Carp was Trying to you know basically create the most modern institution electricity uh, you know room service all this stuff is, is built in there and, and you're seeing the, not just the 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 uh, the evolution of it, it but you're also seeing in a sense a microcosm of how nineteenth century urban life is 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 changing as well.
1: Absolutely, I mean as as I said at the beginning of this conversation, and I'm not the only one to have made this argument. Uh, a lot of um, urban Uh, historians, urban studies scholars make the argument that the modern city is unimaginable without some consideration of the hotel. And so I do feel that the hotel is this microcosm of what is happening um, in the nation more broadly. And I mean, you're you're right. The whole time, Mark, I was writing this book, I was thinking about Airbnb, (laughs) strangely. Again, sort of that presentist Um, gesture in me or that inclination in me, because that's the hotel being rescaled back into the home. And you mentioned, I'll give these people names, um, James Brown, who started Browns, and then William Claridge, who started Claridge's. You're absolutely right. They were domestic servants. Brown was a gentleman's valet or valet, and William Claridge was a butler. So what's interesting about these sort of earlier century grand hotels in London is that it's someone being extremely effective within the space of a private home, right? And and, and talk about really a restricted sense of service and amenities and catered experience. And, you know, Brown and Claridge, they were enterprising entrepreneurial figures who realized, you know, if I can be effective in a single home, I'm going to scale this. Uh, and 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 make it a commercial thing. And, you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, then Langham comes along, Browns and Claridge's—that that's all about literally converting, you know, townhomes in London into this commercial enterprise. But the Langham, again, is this first purpose-built hotel. And all of the promotional materials, all of the publicity materials about the Langham, they're fixated on size, like size matters right? How many bathrooms, how many homes, how many people work there? Um, the scale is, is I mean, talk about the phantasmic modality of the hotel. It's, it's about grand in both senses of that word, like large, but then also opulent and, and sumptuous. And, you know, my final response to your really good comment, um, you know, James Brown and William Claridge, the other reason, Mark, simply that I decided to go through a case study approach, Um, not so much why I chose these five, but I wanted my readers to come to understand not only the biographies of buildings, but some of the lives of the key people associated with the commercial uh, hospitality industry. So Cesar Ritz is gonna show up, Richard Doyley cart James Brown, William Claridge, as I just said, the Victorian Starkitect, star architect Gilbert Scott and then you know even um he was my I said the hotel woman was the great surprise for me in my book but I fell in love with this person named Pierre Hamp who uh at the age of 17 traveled from France to work in the kitchens of the Savoy Hotel under um the guidance of Auguste Escoffier, who was a star chef, you know, kind of like I don't know the Gordon Ramsay of his day, and Hamp at the age of seventeen said, you know, I'm I, I see my opportunity and I'm going to Savoy, and and he was a, a kitchen helper, um, a mere marmotin, um, like a like a cook of kippers and perhaps obviously more elaborate. Uh, dishes since he worked under Escoffier, but he worked his way up. And so I wanted, this was a hard, this was a hard part of my research, Mark, but, you know, a, an essential argument about luxury and leisure, uh, particularly in the Grand Hotel, is that it relies on invisible labor. It, it, it relies on a lot of labor and the labor has to be invisible for the experience of luxury to occur. So it's hard for me to get the voices of, of, you know, all the workers in the hotel. But um, he, so Pierre Hamp was a delight to encounter. I'm I'm like deeply in love with him to this day. A wonderful person.
2: I especially like you know hearing the stories of, of the people who are involved because one of the things you talk about is how for them. Being in these hotels, you know, working in them, constructing them, was a form of social mobility, and that's really a, a a key word in terms of your book. I found, which was that notion of mobility, and that that comes across, uh, in, in uh, especially in your middle chapter, which are, which is about the ways in which hotels were uh, you know, narratives, you know, provided you know, offer narratives of mobility for us today in terms of how people are moving in society, across society, uh, how they capture a particular point uh, in society. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain, you know, how hotels serve at that intersection and and what were some of these uh, stories that, 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 you know, that you were, that you've uncovered.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a, a nice invitation to me. I'll remind our listeners that I am a scholar of literature and culture I've been very influenced by um, uh, historicism, uh, and I'm also interested uh, and and influenced by what is called in in literary studies, the new formalism. Um, And so just like for our listeners, I'll just briefly say that, that that is a return to an interest in You know, questions of literary form, of words on a page, of um, uh, interest in the form of the novel, qua novel. Um, How do we know a novel when we see it? And so, again, I go back to, um, I love this quote from the architect Rem Kohlhaus, the hotel is plot. And I'm interested in the mirroring of the literary form and the social form. And I come really close, Mark, to arguing that the novel is a hotel, <laughs> and the hotel <laughs> is a novel. And you know, partly the kid in me is showing up again because I just remind our listeners, you know, I start uh, the book talking about films like I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, you know, Pretty Woman. Uh, made in Manhattan. Mark, your listeners probably don't even know these films, but um, going farther back, like the films of Hitchcock and how the hotel shows up there, or a really, you know, an oldie but goodie, um, Edmund Goulding's 1932 Grand Hotel, or um, a film like Top Hat. What, what all of those have in common, and I understand that filmmakers call this device the Grand Hotel Plot, um, is that and so like like even a movie um, such as Love Actually, which has nothing to do with hotels, that is a film that works through a grand hotel plot device. Because again, these filmmakers, these these novelists, me as a scholar working today, I'm interested in the hotel as the site of convergence. And as you just said, yeah, mobility is really important to me. So bodies come to this site of the Grand Hotel. They end up there at the same time. So again, the possibility of convergence. Now, you might say that all public spaces function that way. But, Mark, what really interests me about the Grand Hotel is that it's people gathering together in one space to do many things that are extremely private, Um, eating, sleeping, dining, um, having sex, uh, you know, bathing, grooming, I don't know if I've already said that. So I'm really interested in the site of the hotel as a place where um, the figures there can be alone, but together, um, and it works the other way around, together, but alone. Uh, In the Grand Hotel, uh, I sort of visualize it as an individual who's there in the crowd. And for me, that's the essential formula of at least the 19th century British novel that is quite interested in what I call the free-floating self, um, the self that is figuring out who it's going to be. And that identity formation mark is often connected to what I call the sort of the game of social intelligibility that in order to grow up and to find your place in society, um, there are so many scenes in 19th century novels and and they're pretty much what I spend most of my time teaching um, to my students. Those novels are really interested in the stranger, the figure of the stranger, um, the figure also of the imposter. And so again, hotels, Unlike most other public spaces, sort of generate what I'm calling, a, a, I call it a transient togetherness, or a performing of intimacy with strangers. And this is where you know, again, back to the phantasmic modality of the hotel. That's deeply alluring in many ways. It also comes with it a kind of danger and risk and. And we can talk about that later when you want, but I just want to bring it up that what the Grand Hotel offers is proximity. And again, I, I, I sense that the Victorians are very drawn to it, but they're also worried about it as potentially being only near proximity, which I translate as or understand as nearness without closeness. And so the hotel raises sort of concerns or questions about the space between us, um, about borders, about border crossings, uh, again, about being in a space that is home and not home, Mm -hmm. that is domesticity being um, practiced or enacted on a kind of grand scale, that's that's a strange disruption to life as Victorians knew it. Um, so again, it's it's highly appealing and novel, but it also feels risky. And I wanted to register both of those in my book. I hope I did.
2: Oh, you did. I was thinking in particular about your uh, your fifth chapter where you talk about the way you title Hotel Noir, where you, where you talk about that. It really because up until that point. Your your book you talk about this the the hotel as a place of luxury. You talk about the hotel as a place even of habitation, and we can get back to that. But in that chapter, you talk about how the 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 baggage that comes with that. I I, I was connecting in my mind initially with how uh, the the you know the um, the reputation that that the uh, hotels and motels sometimes get of places of, of illicit assignations, nations, you know, places that, you know, book rooms by the hour and, and, and how the, the, and how the seediness of that and how a lot of respectable institutions go out of their way to avoid that with hotel detectives and, you know, in, in, in insisting to that they're above board, but you describe that, that how, you know, with all the, you know, even with the glamour, even with the, 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 uh, luxury, you do have that, that, uh, that, that element, because as you describe, you you talk about how these are places which people are performing all sorts of intimate activities. And, and yet they're doing so in places that no matter how luxurious and comfortable they are, they are ultimately alien for most of them, that this is a place that that is not their home. And there is the sense of, 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 uh, of unfamiliarity of, of, of even mystery and how, and how, especially, you know, in the Victorian era, which becomes famous for, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, it, it's embrace of the home, how that always, this is the sense of, I'm trying to think of the, of the best word for it, but it's, you know, there's always this, this sense of, 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 un, of, discomfort with it.
1: Absolutely. You know, and, and, you know, you mentioned at the start of your comment, uh, you were saying, well, th- this comes with all kinds of baggage and my literalist mind immediately summoned actual baggage or bags or luggage that shows up with the guest at the hotel, uh, front desk. And so what, and, and I want to build off of that because, uh, and you know, hotels are so important. They can't be just one thing. And so it was no problem to me in my thinking. And in fact, I tried hard to register it, that hotels are all about cleanliness. They have to be, and about sort of well-run, ordered, orderly organization, but they're also obsessed with dirt. Um, And so we've got cleanliness and we have dirt uh, on the other hand. And so you're right, there is that chapter that I've titled Hotel Noir. This is, there is this, obviously, this is where Hitchcock comes in, but also people like Edward Hopper, um, I am a Victorianist, but once again, I give myself permission to range uh, and to be trans-historical uh, as well. And so there is this long tradition of hotel noir, but I also mean in actual hotels, um, a real worry about what comes in with the luggage, um, what comes in with the baggage when people check in and check out. And I gotta, I gotta give a shout out to Wayne Kestenbaum's um, very quirky and strange, and I mean those as compliments, and he would take them as compliments, I think. Um, Strange, quirky, brilliant book, Hotel Theory. That was an important book in my own thinking. And Kestenbaum just simply says at one point, the hotel is about the almost. And and I love that. Um, It's almost home. Um it it has to look clean, it has to be clean, but there's definitely an underbelly um, to, I mean, this is obviously what we know about capitalism and consu- consumerism as well. Luxury produces garbage. And uh, there is a, a, a through line in Victorian writings about even grand hotels. There is a through line about secret connections. Um, potential invasions, border crossing. And you're absolutely right that that potential of the hotel um, is, is, is um, a, a real site of attraction for detective fiction uh, and for, again, the tradition of noir, but also murder mystery, um, the gothic novel, uh, all those... Genres that the Victorians and we um, love to read in order to be terrified I, I, or terrorized.
2: I, I have to interject yeah. that that I thought that what captured that best was your 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 inclusion of the discussion of ghosts because is there anything mm-hmm. more representative of the of this of this sense of you know what has been brought in and what has preceded us. Than the notion that there is this spiritual <laughs> remnant that just never goes away I mean it, it, it seems to be the, the best representation because it's one that recurs in so much of the literature that in some of these hotels it becomes part of their lore this idea that there's this haunted presence of the of the of the uh of the uh, guests of, of, of times past
1: I'm thinking of the shining of course <laughs> Of the all-time best movies, and I—I I shouldn't confess this, but I don't have a, uh, much of an appetite for scary films. And so, I had actually avoided. I'm a culturally literate person, but I have—I re- had always refused to watch that film. And I thought, well, I have to watch it now, so I forced myself to. But I'm glad that you summoned Mark, the figure <laughs> of the ghost, because you're—you're you're kind of. I'm listing now all my favorite characters, Um, the hotel woman, Pierre Hamp, but but the ghost, frankly, and I hope you saw that. You know, I have a a section called The Afterlife of the Grand Hotel. Um, I'm really interested in this book in what I call both the spatiality and the temporality of the hotel experience, because I find them extremely distinct. I won't, in this moment, talk much about the spatiality, I've sort of done that already, um, in this conversation, but I'm really interested in what I call hotel temporality, uh, and uh, I talk about what I call abeyance. I also talk about the importance of the meanwhile. So this sense that you know any hotel guest, even in a grand hotel, which might try to obscure this to us, but you know while you're while I'm in room two twelve, meanwhile. There's another guest in room 112 in a room that looks exactly like mine. And so I'm interested in just the uh, experience of time when we're in a hotel. And these grand hotels have such histories. You're absolutely right, Mark, um, that it's almost like a, a claim to fame for hotels to say they have ghosts they have hotel ghosts. So that's clearly um, an, a, a lure for some consumers who want to stay in haunted hotels. So it's, you know, there are guests elsewhere in the hotel that you do and do not see. And then also you're in this space, it's home, but it's not home, where generations of other patrons have stayed before you. So I just, I just find the temporality really fascinating. And the ghost. The ghost embodies that, sort of the presence of the past. What is a ghost other than the presence of the past?
2: You also have uh, another example of temporality in how these hotels associate with these famous people who once stayed. It's almost as though if you know you can't if you don't have the ghost of Oscar Wilde, at least you can name a room after the where he stayed for a few nights or put a plaque up to to honor them. And I thought that that chapter where you talk about the know, that that association, these people who you know in many ways lived their lives in hotels. People like Mark Twain who was touring so often that that he spent so much of his life there, or or in the case of Oscar Wilde who. Had to spend his, his post-imprisonment life in a hotel because he mm. had lost so much of his personal space because of of his uh, of, of his um, you know the the his imprisonment and, and and his disassociation from society.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean. Sometimes ghosts are friendly ghosts, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm dating myself here. I'm a child of the 70s, so I know Casper, the friendly ghost. I don't know if other listeners will, <laughs> will get that reference, but um, they're good ghosts that one would want to be associated with. And um, frankly, you know, back to your question of like, why did I pick the five hotels I did? Claridges, you know, back to that very cheeky response that these are the hotels that I wanted to spend time in. Uh, Claridge's, when you when you go there today, and I do recommend Mark, that you go there at some point point, particularly for tea, you don't have to stay there. Um, you know, I'm just a professor. I can't really afford these types of hotels, <laughs> but um, go have tea there. They have these wonderful black and white photos of you know a different kind of aristocracy, you know all the glamorous Hollywood um, celebrities who you know during the golden age of Hollywood stayed there. So you know I wanted to be where Cary Grant had been and where Kate Hepburn and I, I'm sure you know the famous line Spencer Tracy offered. You know he said he said something like I don't intend to die, but when I do. Um, And, you know, I I want to go to Claridge's, not heaven. Uh, So there's just something about being, I don't know, it's the Nimbus effect or just being the Grand Hotel is this incandescent space and just wanting to be there in the glow. But there are also bad ghosts, too. So I I don't want to gloss over that, but good and bad ghosts. Both have their, again, their their imaginative uh, richness that would would attract um, the the human soul and and the desiring human body.
2: and And to circle back to what you were talking about, with Hotel Noir, there is that notion that that is, creates an opportunity for exploitation, which is part of the sinister nature of it. Because it's a temporary space, you can't control it and people are going to use it a, a, in a predatorial fashion one in one way or another. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, again, the hotel, and, and in terms of my thinking about Hotel Noir, I, I just would have to say that it's Edward Hopper's hotel paintings that, that really helped me think back um, and back into the 19th century. I mean, a lot of my own, this is how we work as writers. I think, you know, many of our own obsessions show up and i would always been fascinated. Well, here we go, Mark, here are the, here are the the good ghosts and the not, and the bad ghosts. I've always been obsessed with Hopper and Joseph Cornell. And so Joseph Cornell's works that he titled Hotel Boxes, they really are trying to summon the dream world of the 19th century and hotel and it's it's glamour it's opulence um I see those as sort of elegiac uh sort of projects of trying to contain that but then there's Hopper and there's such a painting as like the hotel lobby it just doesn't get much better than that and the hotel lobby in that painting and um you know others have written about this that's just all about those secret connections, right? Yeah. Those partly obscured connections among those figures. For for listeners, if you're if if you if you don't have that painting in your mind, go Google it as you're listening to the podcast and draw it up on your screen. Um, sort of just the hotel is a place of secrets, of obfuscation, as you said, Mark, um, earlier in this conversation. The illicit. Um, it's a it's a place of permission and promiscuity.
2: We, we, uh, yeah. we, we have taken up a lot of your time. Uh, but before we go, I was wondering, could you uh, tell us what you're working on now?
1: Oh, yes. And I didn't mean to finish the conversation. I simply oh. meant I I think I finished that answer. So please, Mark, <laughs> um, go on unless. Was there any other question you had about Hotel London? Uh,
2: no, I I, I was uh, I, I was thinking this was a, a good place to stop. And, and I was just wondering uh, what it was that you were uh, currently working on.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I was hoping that you would allow me to say one more thing about Hotel oh. London.
2: Really go go, right, go, go, right, um, go ahead.
1: No, I just I just wanted to say I'm 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 really pleased with um, I do hope that people will check out the book because I do want you to uh, understand more about this figure called the Hotel Woman. Uh, I really uh, would love for listeners to read more about her. And then Perhaps one of the most interesting ghosts that show up uh, is just the hotel itself. I have an interesting, I hope it's interesting, conclusion to the book where I talk about the afterlife of the Grand Hotel. And again, the afterlife is you know partly there in Hopper, it's there in Cornell, but it's also about these global attempts um, to build the next, you know, the grandest hotel. So I talk a bit about Dubai, my book Travels. Um, to North Korea and to what has been called uh, Hotel Doom, but I end with my my best um, case study, which is the Grand again, the Saint Pancras, which I just I, I just complete its story, which is uh, when I first started going to London, it was a a derelict building in the 1980s is when I first started going to London as a scholar and a researcher, and it's just come back into existence. It's been reborn as a modern grand hotel with again, deep roots in its 19th century original iteration. But it's been brought back to life largely by means of the Eurostar um, being moved to that part of London. So, you know, it's interesting. Grand hotels they are still about mobility for us. They're still about luxury cultures. And in this particular case, Um, It is particularly, once again, the railways Um, and, Mark, you're absolutely right. My all important concept of mobility. So real quickly, um, Mark, you can tell that I'm passionate about Hotel London, so it's hard (laughs) for me to stop talking about it. Thank you for asking me about my next project. So I am shocked to say that my next project is already out in the world it is, um, and I'm, I'm saying I'm shocked because writers don't, I certainly don't write that quickly usually, but it's an edition of a work that has long been out of print um, by the Anglo-South African author Olive Schreiner. And it's an 1890 book called Dreams. And the reason I wanted to bring it out into the world in 2020, it just came out um, in November, is that that is the anniversary of the death of Schreiner. And it's also, as all Americans know, the anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. And this little known work for us today was an essential text. It was a Bible for uh, suffragettes and suffragists uh, working in the 19th century. So it felt very important to me to bring that work back out into the world Um, So I really recommend that listeners, if you if you like this conversation, if you like what I have to say, check that out. And then very quickly, Mark, so that's already out my next project. Um, But my next uh, uh, strangely, I'm working on an article uh, on awkwardness. (laughs) (laughs) And then I am starting a major project on time in the 19th century. Um, and that might take the rest of the time I have left on this earth <laughs> to finish. Well, <laughs> and that's- so that's where I'm going next. Those are two wildly different. Um, a little piece on awkwardness, which you know, probably again, my trilogy suggests that I'm really interested in human sociability and in our social existence, and I, I just. I'm missing a work that talks about awkwardness and the kind of, um, I guess, social work that it does. But then the big one is time.
2: Well, when you, it, assuming it doesn't take the rest of your life and uh, you uh, complete it, uh, I, I would, it'd would be great if you could uh, come back on the New Books Network and uh, talk about it.
1: Absolutely. I'd be happy to. And and Mark, just real quickly, I have to remain cryptic here I am in negotiations right now also with some really important writers uh, and some creatives about another project, which I would really love. I mean, we just haven't um, we haven't signed the contract yet, so I can't talk about it. But um, maybe we'll keep listeners on the edge of their seat and maybe (laughs) I can come back uh, with my comrades on that. That's a collaboration and talk to you again
2: that would be fantastic. Thank you very much for taking some time out of your very busy schedule to speak with us, Barbara. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you, Mark. It's been a great conversation.